From the Center for the Study of Race, Politics and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism and neoliberalism with your host, Michael Dawson. Venezuela is professor of Chicano Chicano Studies and Urban Planning and director of the UCLA's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. He has authored numerous articles, books, and reports on immigrant settlement, work, and urban poverty. His research on day labor and immigrant labor markets have helped frame national public and policy narratives on immigration and low-wage workers. Los Angeles occupies the central focus of his research and teaching and guides the Institute's research directions. Abel was born and raised in Los Angeles and earned his bachelor's from the University of California, Berkeley, and advanced degrees, including his PhD from MIT. Welcome. How you, been? you. How you been? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation, but more so to talk about this larger project of capitalism and race, <laughs> uh, in part since it was first announced, but also uh, as a way to think about scholarship in a post-November 2016 era, which really has occupied a lot of my intellectual, if you will, um, thinking, and to the extent that I control resources, how I might earmark resources to understand some of these contours and cleavages over race and work. And I mean, as you know better than I do, the period we're in is a global period. This morning I had the joy of reading about the Austrian elections. We just had the German elections. Um, before t- November, we had Brexit. The Global North, if I was being less scientific, I could say it's lost its collective mind. <laughs> but, but actually, they haven't. <laughs> there's, a, there's rational, there's a logic behind what's going on. It's one that's inimical to a lot of the populations we study and work with and the ones we're from. And there's, as you suggest, a lot of work we do. And you wear a lot of different hats. You know, you. You've been involved in Chicano Chicano studies from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you're doing work on research on labor and employment. You're running that sh- that shop now. Right. You're working with the Racing Capitalism Project at UCLA. How do these fit together? So I, I, I think your suggestion at the beginning of your question about our interaction globally is one of the ways that this works together. And let me give one example based on a project that I did years ago and an article that I co-authored with Paul Apostolidis, a good friend of mine and a political theorist who has written on, for example, day labor, immigrant rights, and to some extent labor issues, but more so civil society, I think, is the best way to describe it. So early on in my career, when I first set foot on on campus, I was really interested on, on on issues related to day laborers, men who look for work on street corners. And I, I launched a big Los Angeles-based survey and then a national survey. And, and then, then I've spent um, for the past decade or so really mining this data, trying to make sense of it and this market. And of course, it's connections both in the US and, and globally. And there's a huge global connection beyond just the immigration context. And in this work that I did with Apostolidis, for example, we explored the theory of cosmopop- 
cosmopolitanism. And it's this notion of thinking and acting and working locally, but also expanding in a global context. And of course, it made a whole lot of sense to do some frame and analysis related to day labor. And and so the both of us combined mined a lot of the empirical data for examples of both this local context as well as this global one. And they were rich in lots of sorts of transnational conversations, but more importantly, actions from raising resources to sending back home, um, policies related to their displacement from country of origin, labor demand in our country and how that facilitates low-skilled and other kinds of immigration. And so it was, for me, one of these exercises where I could really think about the study of workers in a U.S. context and very easily, at least in my mind, to make theoretical and empirical connections in a global. And so when Paul and I started speaking about our work, it made sense in this context, in this theoretical frame. And so we we did this really nice piece. I mean, it was when my few engagements with uh, political science and political theory. And so <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Um, and, and, and I'm looking forward to continuing that sort of uh, engagement. I mean, one of the, you talked about the demand side on, yeah. in the U.S., but I, was, I would assume that some of the displacement was due to U.S. policies as yes. well. Yes, yes. So just yesterday, I participated in a talk. Jason DeLeon, who's a a MacArthur Fellow from the University of Michigan. He's a, an anthropologist by training. And, and, and he shared with us, of course, the work related to violence, young people, gangs. And his project is exploring the role of human smuggling. And, of course, the connections to the U.S. were clear. And, and these, of course, were young folks were either um, making the trek to the United States or they were folks who had been displaced from the United States and had returned. Or, and, and, and these are young people trying to make sense of their lives and resorting to policies and processes that are directly related to our own immigration policies related to detention and deportation. And of course, that didn't happen in, in November, but actually stems back from President number 45, I mean, 44. And of yeah. course, I was a big fan, but there is some empirical evidence that a, a lot of these immigration policies were supported, though there were some adjustments, some, you know, DACA, I think, was a really important thing to do as, a, as an example. But it was a part of a larger system, uh, a broken immigration system. And, and I think the president, Obama, had to do what he had to do under certain conditions. I don't, I, I, I do criticize him for some of his policies, but I think he started figuring things out toward the end of his term. Some people argue that um, he had less capital to do that. I, I, I think this is a really complicated issue, and, and I don't see him in anywhere near the same way that other people see him in terms of, of, of the criticisms that have been levied on him. I think actually our broken immigration st system stems before the Obama era, during Bush, for example. Uh, well, yeah, as, you, as you know, I haven't been 
a friend in print to 44. <laughs> I know. I know. But I, think, I, I mean, I agree with you that a lot of the aspects, whether it's the aspects of neoliberalization of the, and financialization of the economy, mm-hmm. the bailing out of Wall Street as opposed to bailing out of workers, and certainly the large number of deportations that occurred, these are structures, systems, and technologies that have been in place for a very, very long time. But one of the questions I, I think you alluded to, I think most of the people who have been on this podcast believe that there seems to be at least a radical break or ex- exacerbation of these with 45. What does it mean to be at a public university in the type of programs involving ethnic studies, involving sure. labor studies, et cetera, sure. You know, sure. both in terms of challenges and responsibilities? So the big difference, I think, between 45 and 44, and, and let me be clear, I think there are huge differences, would be the, the level of, uh, the escalating level of in-your-face, nasty politics that racialize what was previously known as a racial argument against immigrants, right? When folks during Prop 187, five years ago, were talking about anti-immigration, everybody knew that we were talking about Latinos, more specifically about Mexicans. The difference now is that Trump has been very explicit in his antagonism and outright racism, I believe, against Mexicans, ranging from his opening salvo uh, in his announcement to his insistence that Mexico pay for this ridiculous wall to his crackdown on undocumented immigration and DACA. And all you need to do is look at the demographics. We're talking about Mexicans, right? And he's now talking about Mexicans. And there, there's something also about the broader pan-ethnic Latino context, and I, I don't want to shy away from that. But in terms of differences, I think Trump has come out in a very hateful way and has increased the racialization, the outright highlighting of Mexicans as the other. Now, this isn't the first time that this has happened in our country. Really? Um, <laughs> I tell you black people, I don't know anything. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so it, it's just stunning to me, right, that it has been so explicit this time around. I mean, I wasn't around for the first time, but it does allow us to engage with historians on this particular topic. But, yeah, and not but, and, and I, mean, I think the but was, you know, He'll take his shot at everybody, right? You know, he's right. taking a shot at Puerto yeah. Rican, Puerto Ricans, taking a few shots at black folks. I think the one category that he's going after as hard as he's going after Mexican is uh, is Muslims. So the yeah. level of Islamophobia yeah. is just extraordinary as well, and do, using every every possible state institu- mechanism to go after. One of the questions I have, and one of the things that I don't think we pay enough attention to is the relationship between the United States and Mexico. What are the implications of this regime for that relationship and for people in Mexico as well? 
I mean, I know you live in northern Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but those state boundaries are there right now. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, and I have some insights and some conversations with colleagues from across the border and then, of course, colleagues here who work with colleagues from across the border and then, of course, my own colleagues on this campus who do research on, on Islam or other sorts of um, others. And, 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 and in part to go back to your previous question about the role of the university, I've been asked to serve in a larger role to understand the negative implications, for example, of this travel ban. Mm-hmm. It turns out that UCLA has a large number of scholars, students, and faculty from these banned countries. And it results in problems for our efficiency and our productivity. And so it makes us less competitive compared to other institutions who might have less people from these countries, right? We don't pay attention to issues of nationality or race when we admit people. We're bringing them because of their their smarts, because of their minds. And so this travel ban has put a big issue uh, on our table that we need to address. And so they've asked me to think about this in the context of other immigration policies. And, and, and so in my interactions with staff and faculty, it quickly became apparent that there was a lot in common between this travel ban that was clearly anti-Muslim and then, of course, the increased ICE detentions in terms of what's going on here at UCLA in the day-to-day and the interactions between students and faculty. And so it was really refreshing that a group of faculty were able to come together and really think about how to build these bridges, at least on this campus, to showcase some of the similarities or at least to rally against the other. In this instance, this administration that's attacking people from other parts of the world. And so that's been a useful exercise for me, both in terms of a faculty, teacher, the role of a public institution, and then, of course, in terms of thinking about how we might interact outside of this institution, right? As simple as looking at commonalities and and, and thinking of us in, in, in one camp as the other is, in my opinion, a good reason to come together and start thinking about other sorts of commonalities and strategies to move forward. Can you say a little bit more about what you're doing at the Institute? Sure thing. So last year I was appointed director of the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. It's the largest organized research unit and the oldest, excuse me, it's the oldest, not the largest, it's the oldest organized research unit in the University of California. It was (laughs) established by Errol Warren, a Republican governor of California, who thought that it was important that we understand worker and management relationships. This was Ah. um, during the heyday of the union movement. And of course, many folks thought that unions were here to stay. And so the idea was we need to understand how to interact and become even more efficient. And so this discipline in many ways emerged as a result of that in the 30s. And we still exist. It's fair to say that a lot of the work that we've been doing in the past couple of years has shifted slightly from the the role of organized labor and, and management worker relations to understanding, for example, emerging labor markets, as well as disappearing markets and how that impacts 
workers of different racial backgrounds. So, for example, we have a project that looks at black work in Los Angeles, and this is a very important topic in part because when people think of work in Los Angeles, they don't think of black workers. They think of Latino workers, or they think of immigrant workers, or they might think of, them, of entrepreneurs in the Korean immigrant and their interactions with black unemployed workers. Well, it's much more nuanced, it's much more rich, and we do have some really interesting data points related to African-American workers. For example, the current decision that's going to eventually make its way to the Supreme Court to make union fees mandatory or voluntary is going to impact public sector unions, right? These are jobs that came about during the affirmative action era. And so if you look at basic demographics based on occupational and industrial classifications, you'll find that many government jobs are filled with African-Americans, to a lesser extent Latinos, and white women. And many of these jobs are also union jobs. The thinking is that if we don't make union dues mandatory like they are now, there's going to be anywhere from one-third to one-half um, folks saying, no, I'm not going to pay a union due, yet they'll benefit from being Free a riding. part of the union. And the idea and the, the fear is that we're going to lose many African-American workers as a result of this potential impact. There'll be less dues coming in and unions will, will be less effective. And the thinking is eventually they might die. I mean, that's clearly why we have this current issue coming up before the Supreme Court. It's to dismantle the union. And this will have huge implications for black workers. So we have a project trying to understand some of that. We also do research, for example, on the gig economy, Lyft drivers, Uber drivers, to what extent are those workers being abused? How is that market organized? What kind of resources come in? We have another project that looks at young workers, and it turns out that young workers face all kinds of exploitation, and a large number of young workers are African-American and Latino. So what used to be a process whereby young black workers or young Latino workers might work to earn spending money or extra money is less so. Now, young workers earn money because they need to feed themselves or they're contributing to their household or they're in a situation that doesn't allow them to make gainful employment because of their race. And so we're trying to understand, for example, scheduling practices and how that disproportionately impacts young people and are used as tools by employers to disenfranchise workers. Again, a large number of these workers being young um, people of color. One of the articles I remember in the volume reading Rodney King was an article from UCLA faculty that talked about the disappearing of manufacturing jobs in South Central and how that extraordinarily uh, disadvantaged primarily black workers but also Latino workers and essentially Chicano <laughs> workers as well. How has the, I mean, we've been, you know, part of the reason is that we're all here in LA this weekend is to talk about race and capitalism and some of its global aspects. How has the, the evolution of the economy in Southern California over the past few decades impacted process of racialization, immigration, and labor? Sure, sure. That's a, that's a great question. I think Los Angeles 
is such a unique, industri- has a unique industrial and workplace typology. So it, it, in many ways, it followed industrial restructuring trends across the United States, right, where you had decline in manufacturing and a huge bifurcation of jobs at the high end and jobs at the low end. But what's been really interesting is that you have seen, I, I, I'm not sure how I would call it, a, a renaissance or some growth back to the middle in terms of manufacturing. It might be light manufacturing, mm. textiles, restaurant worker work, and other sorts of light manufacturing that does result in jobs. And so one of the really interesting projects going on in Los Angeles is, is of organized labor and their efforts to organize these workers, right? So you have efforts afoot, for example, to work with day laborers. Imagine the AFL-CIO working closely with the National Day Labor Organizing Network to organize street corner workers. You have the LA County Federation of Labor similarly working outside of the box, outside of your brick and mortar sorts of organizing strategies because LA is just now so complex when it comes to our industrial typology. So it's fair to say that this restructuring that occurred and and, and is still very fluid and is still um, happening had some really dire, I think, implications demographically, uh, to go to, to your question, in very simplistic ways. When I say simplistic, in the sense that numbers really shifted. Obviously, the, 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 the shift is very nuanced and complicated. And for example, some African Americans were priced out of their housing. And so mm. they've moved to the um, southeastern part of, of Los Angeles, including San Bernardino, for example. Many have gone on beyond that Riverside, Las Vegas, Nevada. But there's a good number of folks who also remained and 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 their participation in, in economic restructuring has been mixed at best. And and so there's different sorts of efforts afoot. So for example, there's the creation of the Black Worker Center in the Crenshaw District that comes out of the UCLA Labor Center, which is a subunit under the institute that I direct. And the thinking early on was that day laborers and other immigrant workers were really starting to make an inroad in this very interesting and dynamic market where there were some opportunities. I mean, in in some of the work that I did early on on day labor, we knew that hourly wages were coming in at 10 to $12, right? The, The problem was that the work was insecure and infrequent. So the policy intervention was to make that work more secure and more frequent. And so, yes, less precarious. And so there were efforts to organize and upgrade that industry. So colleagues who were creating the Black Worker Center drew on some of those best practice models and applied it to some of the cultural and other sorts of nuances that black workers brought to the table. And it's fair to say that that model really has been important. It was highlighted by Barack Obama and there's a presence in Los Angeles and in Northern California that focuses on organizing black workers outside of a union model. I think that's a huge development. I think it's super important and it shows 
movement in a, in, a, in a thoughtful, progressive way outside of, I think, traditional notions of organizing workers. Plus, I think the beauty of this is that it allows black work to bridge with newer, if you will, notions of organizing and movements related to workers, the whole worker movement, which involves domestic workers, taxi um, cab drivers, day laborers. And so it's a way to, if you will, partner with this movement that I think is gaining traction and is making a difference in workers' life uh, lives. I mean, there's a lot more that needs to be done, but it's some example that we can point to and, and talk about intervening, talk about inflections to arrest some of these inequities that we find in the labor market. And the beauty, I think, also is that the directors of, of many of these programs and projects come from educated spaces who really pay attention to issues of race and inequality and capital. And they undertake power analysis. And they use research to leverage these sorts of policy prescriptions and interventions at a community level. And so to be a part of that is, for me, extremely gratifying. And, and to be a part of this project, in part to document, but to push this research further, I think is also exciting because it's one of the few times in my academic career for the past 25 years where I've been able to engage with thought leaders and thinkers about how we arrest, if you will, the negative contours and issues over capitalism and race. One of the interesting aspects of the Southern California economy about a generation ago, I assume that it's massively changed, that outside of the entertainment industry and some basic manufacturing, steel, aluminum, what have you, Kaiser, um, there's a really... The tech industry in Southern California was much different than the tech industry that I was where I knew a lot about because I was in it in Northern California. Because even more than Northern California, the tech industry in Southern California was tied to the defense industry. <laughs> how has that changed over the years? I mean, there was studies back in, at that time that showed how tech in general, but defense industries did not mainly hired white men for jobs that needed some skills but weren't. But still, you know, those, that type of middle you, you were talking about. So, you know, defense was huge in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, Faith and everything else. Right. And, 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 and here you had a period where we were making inroads, both in terms of graduating young people of color in, 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 in schools, right, of, of institutions of higher learning. You had affirmative action. And the feds were starting to take that seriously. And we were starting to see improvements. And then, bam you have this massive decline of that industry, at least in this area. Mm -hmm. And of course, that led to massive displacement of workers, middle-class workers, Latino workers, African-American workers, at least those that had started making inroads in that industry. And there was really very little replacement of those jobs. There was very little retraining, retooling of the workers. And so it had a huge impact on neighborhoods and communities, specifically those, for example, in, 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 in Whittier and Comrest and South Central. I mean, these were communities where folks were driving to these um, aerospace and defense work on, and then going back home. They provided stability to cars, kids 
children were able to go to community colleges or a state system. It really was a, a part of black and Latino middle class, and that disappeared, right? And what came in was nowhere near the type of quality or earnings potential jobs. And so it's, it's fair to say that a lot of the interventions that I'm talking about and the research that I'm talking about is to better understand both the historical and the interactions of these jobs, but more importantly, what can we do to intervene? And so there, therefore my um, emphasis on empiricism and policy and interventions. I mean, a lot of what I do at the Institute usually has some aspect of policy, some aspect about what we do next, some aspect about how community-based organizations might be able to intervene and or somebody else in terms of improving things. And so that to me is very um, satisfying. One of the, I was here during the time of Proposition 13. Uh, and I saw what happened to the L.A. schools and the Northern California schools. What, in terms of growing the economy, and I know there's a lot of controversy with the L.A. school board right now, what role do you see for public schools in, the, in, the, in terms of trying to restructure economy in ways that deals with some of these forms of inequality we've been talking about? Great, great question. So... LA Unified School District is, I think, the second largest, and its budgets are just, you know, in the billions, right? And then when you start adding that up year after year after year, it's, it's, it's stunning. Then you have all the resources that are earmarked towards teachers, right? And then you have a very strong teachers' union. And then embedded in all of that, you have the magnet movement and then the charter movement. And I'm one of those who really, really questions and has major concerns about resources leaving LA Unified and going towards charters and magnets. I don't believe that they've done a good enough job of, of, of making those other institutions accessible to poor kids, right? And, and, and until that happens, I'm going to have major issues. There's other concerns that, that I have about charters. I, I do think that the primary focus should be uh, its bread and butter, i.e. non-charters and non-magnets. With regards to how we might be thinking about LA Unifor, Unified as a larger kind of economic driver, as well as uh, you know, social justice impact, some of the things that I think LA Unified should be thinking about, for example, they spent millions of dollars on nutrition and on food, right? And so they should be thinking about how they're impacting food distribution in California and how food distribution is driven by workers that are predominantly Latino and black, both from the picking of the food to its processing to its packaging and then of course its distribution and so to the extent that the LA Unified signs these major multi-million dollar contracts they should put in place certain protections for workers that's that seems to be to me a no-brainer the problem is that I think sometimes you have both politicians and school board not wanting to push in certain directions though 
I'm hopeful that under the leadership of Monica Garcia, that some of that might happen with this current school board, current president um, had to step down because of some um, really bad and proper um, contributions. But it's it's a big institution, and we should be thinking of, of them as a partner, as something more strategic in, in these sorts of efforts, as opposed to a silo, as something independent that we can't change to impact our neighborhoods and our children. I've been talking to some union leaders at fairly high levels who are trying to who at least have advisors who say, look, we have pension funds that right. we can be, which are major sources of capital. Yep. We should be not just thinking about how to maximize our return on investment, but we need to be thinking about how to strategically use these funds to help our membership, which means helping deal with some of the inequalities that they have to deal with. Absolutely. I, I think our our relationship and our work with different teachers unions have, has been very key and instrumental, not only in terms of our advisory board, but in our work at the Institute. And it's it's, in my opinion, one of the most important things to do for the very basic reason that these are the folks that are working with our children. And uh, and in Los Angeles, that means predominantly immigrant and black kids, right? And so not paying attention to these sorts of processes and, and these sorts of inflection points and pushing them to do better is foolish. They have to be a part of um, this broader project uh, in terms of understanding race and capital. So for my last question, where do you think our research, some of the areas we should be pushing our research over the next few years, given the political circumstances and the conditions of the people that we work with find themselves in? You know, I often think about research and moving forward in, in, in two ways, and, and I'm not sure this is the most satisfying answer, certainly not for me, but this is kind of my my two cents on that. The first is doubling down. I think we need to figure out how to do rapid response research. And here I'm talking about the sorts of quick literature reviews and maybe getting together key data and statistics to put out briefs, if you will, that counter the misinformation that's coming from the White House and elsewhere, right? And, and so a lot of that is regurgitating what we already know. But I think we have to do that because Absolutely. there's a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of anti-empirical um, stuff. And so we have to double down and we need, if you will, the, the, the resources and the expertise, which in my opinion is a cadre of graduate students and faculty working together to kind of release these sorts of research that is based on past um, projects. And then moving forward, I think we need to be looking, at least in, in my more narrow world of, of work, on emerging markets and their increasing connection to both the global, the local, and of course their policies and how they're directly impacted by our federal as well as our state, regional, and local municipalities, if you will, government sectors and how these markets are changing. And of course, the task of keeping up with the shifty 
capitalist, right? I think Marx was right when he said that capital is constantly adjusting to make sure <laughs> it, it, it still has that profit margin, right? It's, it's being... And it's expanding. Oh, and it's expanding. <laughs> and, it's, and, and, you know, I, I don't see it disappearing. And so I think in that similar way, we have to be on top of it in terms of understanding these shifts and these new iterations, these new processes. And so a lot of the research that I spoke about that we're doing, I think it's part of these new markets that I'm trying to understand. And of course, the connection between race and capital is central in the work that I do moving forward. And so my engagement in this larger project is, in my opinion, a much more natural fit than, than engaging in other sorts of exercises. And on that note, I want to say thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.